0: Well, that's a pretty powerful video, and I imagine there's not a person here that can't relate to brokenness in your life and the need for regeneration and redemption and hope, no matter what your struggle might be. And I wanted to make sure that you see this, because we've got a recovery ministry in our church, and it's called Regeneration. What it is, it's a biblically-based, 12-step discipleship uh, ministry— and if you're wanting healing, recovery, you need hope. Uh, we're actually having another meeting that's an interest meeting uh, this Tuesday, uh, right here at the church. at 7 o'clock, okay? Because we're looking to form some men's groups and some women's groups. Whether you're uh, needing victory in your life, because right now you're facing a lot of defeat, or you want to be helpful to others in this process where they experience the healing, the hope, and the joy of knowing Christ, uh, so we want to just invite you this Tuesday uh, at 7 o'clock here at the church. And it's interesting as you're uh, listening to that uh, video, there was a common theme. And one of the things that really will stand out is this principle. The orientation of your heart determines the direction of your life. The orientation of your heart determines the direction of your of your life. And if you want to move past feelings of hopelessness and despair if you'd like to have hope then you want to have your Bibles open to James chapter 4 because in verses 1 through 12 he is going to spell out how you and I can truly have hope. If you will if you will take this passage to heart this will revolutionize your relationships. Um, in a, This passage is going to explain why you've got tension and problems whether it be in your home, at work Uh, relationships that are not working out, Uh, if you take this passage to heart, it will revolutionize your parenting. It'll stop you from throwing hand grenades into relationships and blowing them up. Because it gets addressed in this passage. And it'll actually help you understand why people behave the way that they do. Why do people murder each other? How in the world did Bill and Sally end up in divorce court? Why are people so vicious with their tongues, just literally thrashing and destroying relationships? Why do you respond the way you do, like in commuter traffic, right, at rush hour, and you're thinking of all sorts of mayhem? Why, why do we behave this way? This passage addresses not only why, but it shows us how we can overcome, how we can live differently. It comes down to this, friends. What is the orientation of your heart. What is it? Because the orientation of your heart is really going to determine the direction of your life. Remember what uh, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The orientation of your heart gets expressed in the direction of your life. As we continue our series in the book of James, you come to James chapter 4, where he is going to take head-on The obstacle to maturing faith in Christ. And that is self-centeredness. You and I have a built-in self-centered orientation. And you need to understand there's all sorts of evil that comes from selfish pride. Let's take a look. Chapter 4 verse 20 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war? In your members. Anything from a personal dislike to international warfare, it finds its origins in, right here in verse 1. It's this selfishness. It wages war. It's your pleasures that wage war in your members. You need to understand that the problems you have in your external relationships, the trouble that you're observing, has an interior source. It's sourced in you, your pleasure. You see that? Nobody here is born with just kind of a humble, submissive uh, heart. Actually, we are very demanding. We are built in, it's like a built-in characteristic to be self-centered. It's kind of like everybody's got like an inner two-year-old in them, and you will Scream and cry and throw temper tantrums and you will bite people if you don't get your way, right? You don't get the candy bar, you don't get the toy that you want, you don't get what you want, what happens is you just kind of explode and you go ballistic. And that is the problem. And what James is doing is he's tying the external visible behavior you see, conflicts, waging war with people, and he's tying it into the inward, interior, internal, core issues of your heart. It's a self-centered orientation. And it literally creates all sorts of problems. He says, verse, verse 1, is not the source your pleasures? That word pleasure, is, the Greek word is adone. It's where we get our word hedonism from. Anybody know what hedonism is? Yes, yeah, that drive to please self. Where pleasures, specifically sensual pleasures, drive your behavior. You see it, you want it, you go after it. And really, the philosophy that makes pleasure the chief end of humanity is what he's addressing here. And really, hedonism should get a lot more credit for human behavior than it does. Because it drives so much of why we do what we do. We want it. It's it's all about a self-centered orientation. The result is all sorts of evil He literally says It's your pleasure It's the self-centered drive It wages war It has the idea of strategies Of wanting to be worked out And it wages war In your your body And notice also he says in verse 2 You want to see what this looks like? Let me give you some examples You lust And you do not have So what do you do? So you commit murder You are envious, and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. So what he's saying here is, not that every time that you're angry and you lust and you can't get something, you commit murder. But what he wants you to understand is that that is the potential ultimate outcome when your desires get blocked. It shows up. Anything from a facial expression to an attitude, some words you throw out there and and make a mess out of a situation to other behavior. And really, history has proved that an insatiable desire can actually lead to murder. Let me give you some biblical examples. Like a guy by the name of David. King David. You're probably pretty familiar with him. But you remember, it was David who murdered Uriah. Why? Because of his lust. For Bathsheba. You see, you lust, you do not have, so what? You commit murder. I'm blocked. I want something. This guy's in the way. He's gone. You want another example? Ahab. He murdered Naboth. Why? Because he desired his vineyard. I want it. You're in the way. You're blocking me from what I want. After all, that's the most important thing. So you know what I'm going to do? I will kill you. We do crazy things. Our sense of judgment completely gets lost when selfishness and anger steps in. Years ago, uh, February 2009, there's a 27-year-old woman in Fort Pierce, Florida. she has been thinking about the joy it is to consume chicken McNuggets. I mean, aren't that good? I'm placing that thought right there in your head. Those chicken McNuggets, you know, in that little cardboard box there. Oh, doesn't that sound good? And she'd been thinking about it. So she went to her neighborhood McDonald's. She went in and she placed her order for a 10-piece chicken McNugget. And the guy on the counter, he took her money, and I guess he put on a charge card and took care of that. He went to get the chicken McNuggets, and lo and behold, this was rough, but they were out. He had to go back and report to the lady, listen, you know what, we're out of chicken McNuggets. Um, You can have anything on the menu, greater value, whatever you'd like. No, I want those McNuggets. Now, give me my mic Well, you're, maybe we're listening, we can give you. And, whoa, we, you know what we got here? And you, some of you recognize that. we got an all-out emergency, don't we? What do you do when you're in an emergency status? Well, you call 911, don't you? And that's exactly what she did. She called 911. She explained the situation, and she's upraised. You know, this is terrible. The people on the, that are receiving the 911 call thought this was absolutely insane and just, like, hung up on her. Whoa, that made her mad. So she called two more times. She called it all three more times because she's enraged by the situation. Now, this is a very sad story, and I know some of you are going to be very depressed, but she ended up not getting the chicken McNuggets. But she did get a visit later on that day from a couple police officers. They gave her a ticket for misusing 911. And I tell you this because anger twists perspective. Self-centeredness Changes how you see people and how you see events and how you see things. And what happens is it skews our judgment. Self-centeredness, anger, blocked uh drive. What happens is you uh take small things and you pull them up and you make them big things. And things that are really important, you treat them as small. And what happens is when you're angry, you you gotta have your way. And if it's not being met, someone's going to pay. And what James is saying, this is exactly how it gets played out. He says, you, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. You see, when you're, when you're driven by self, when the little G-O-D that's running your life is self, you know what happens? You don't pray. Because after all, you're the little God that's running the show. And so you don't pray, and that's what he's saying. Like, you don't pray, you don't even have an opportunity to have your thoughts and requests refined by coming to the presence of God, because you don't even see the need to do that. And Roy says, when you do ask, verse 3, you do ask, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motive, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, when you do ask for things, it's always for your will, not God's will. See, not all prayers are God-honoring. Those might come as a surprise. But the whole self-centered perspective, where you treat God as like some sort of celestial Santa, some like little fairy that just prints you whatever wish you want. So prayer is, God, I need this. Help me to have a happy day, happy life, whatever. I need this toy. Make this person do this. These are all very self-oriented prayers. They really are not taking into consideration God and what he's providing and what he's doing. And a self centered orientation rarely prays and asks for God to transform hearts and to mature uh, one's character. And friends, this can lead to all sorts of problems. There was a, an event that took place in uh, FIFA World Championships 1994. Uh, some of you will remember this situation. Colombia had sent a team, uh, largely due to one of their star defenders, a guy by the name of Andreas Escobar. And they were playing in June of uh, the United States in the competition. And Escobar, who's a fantastic athlete, this great defender, he, he makes the slide to block a pass between two Americans, and somehow he mistimes it. And his foot ends up hitting the ball in such a way that the ball goes rolling into the goal and scores a goal for the United States. And it came off his foot. Okay, that's a bad situation, right? And a few days later, Colombia was eliminated. They lost that game to the United States two to one. So after they've been eliminated from the tournament, five days later he returns to Colombia. Where that night, the night he returns, he's gunned down, takes six shots, largely believed because of a malicious response to the unintended goal. Now you don't know the exact particular reasons, what happened, but you do kind of know why. Someone didn't get what they wanted, and so you just act out. You're like, whoa, that doesn't make any sense. That's the point. When you're driven by self and anger, you do a lot of irrational things. I was talking with my brother uh, this past week. He's a lieutenant uh, for police force outside of Nashville. And he told me the most dangerous call that they go on. He sends his folks out guys and gals. Do you happen to know any police officers? Anybody know what the most dangerous call police officers make? That's right. Yeah, you guys know. It's domestic. When you got a domestic disturbance, what? That's the most dangerous call? Yeah, domestic disturbance. And he says, like, we never respond to any uh, domestic disturbance unless we have two cars available. Because it's just, it's, it's so uh, problematic. I mean, people just go ballistic. And he says, we do this all the time. On every shift, they have a minimum of four domestic calls that they're going into. And what happens is like selfishness just drives behavior. There's no downrange thinking. It's all about you and, and you getting what you want and you're being blocked, and these are very volatile situations. In fact, he told me just like let me just tell you what I think are the three primary reasons of what creates all these domestic disputes first one he said is drug addiction the second is infidelity and the third are financial issues and how much of that is tied to a self-centered orientation selfish pride on steroids running rampant creating all sorts of havoc I mean just think about it even last week remember last week at Palm Springs two officers were gunned down what were they responding to Domestic disturbance. That's what was going on. I'll say. See, you and I have to come to terms with just how powerful selfish pride is. When you get your goals blocked, you start fuming and raging, you didn't get what you wanted, you better start figuring out what is it that I wanted that I didn't get. Because that's the response, that's actually explaining a lot of your behavior and what happens is we've got to have our way this is what james is addressing this is a huge issue and if self-centeredness isn't addressed you don't mature in christ you just keep blowing up relationships you keep tearing people down you keep living in isolation because you're driven by self and its evil desires and you see it anywhere from the high chair all the way to the highest court from the nuclear family to those who could potentially cause nuclear war, from the playground to the boardroom, what is driving behavior in all these problems we're seeing? It's right here. We're living in a selfie-obsessed culture. We can't get enough of ourselves and we're always taking pictures of ourselves. Why does that make sense? Because you are the ultimate object, right? The world resolves, revolves around you you need to understand what James is saying. This is serious stuff. This is completely at odds with what God would intend for his people. And I hope you have your seatbelts on because the next verse, I told you, James doesn't. like can't coat anything? Look what he says, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god when you did you kind of take a pause when you read you adulteresses what he's doing is evoking the imagery of the prophets and so much in the old testament you see this this metaphor of marriage where you have god yahweh and he is married to caring for israel and it's pictured in terms of marriage. And when Israel goes astray, and they adopt the idols of the people that they're living with, and they treat God as cavalier, or they start mixing, a little bit of like our tradition of worshiping God with a lot of this weird stuff that we're seeing here. And let me tell you, God says that is spiritual adultery. It's unfaithfulness. And adultery, like you see in like Proverbs, uh, like the adulterous woman, Proverbs 30 verse 20, she does and does whatever she pleases. She wipes her mouth like I've done nothing wrong, right? And that's what it's addressing. You see this word friendship that appears there? This idea of friendship with the world, it has this longing, this deep sense of emotional attachment. It's an intimate longing, in this case, for the things of the world. Not the things of God, but the things the world offers. It's ideals. It's pleasures. It's priorities. And remember what Jesus said? You can't have two masters. Remember that? Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. But you cannot serve God and wealth. The blessed place to get run over is the middle of the road, and you can't have it both ways. What happens, like Paul said in Second Timothy, they become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And you might want to remember this principle. Friendship with the world destroys our fellowship with God. Friendship with the world destroys our fellowship with God. When it talks about the world, it's talking about its ideals, its priorities. Um, it's, it's idea of finding fulfillment apart from God. Well, you could just, every once in a while, throw God in there, right? And you see that, especially at times of tragedy, but for the most part, you're just running life on your own. Friends, friendship with the world destroys our fellowship with God. And if you're thinking like, hey, Grant, I think you and James are taking this a little too far. This world is a great place, very friendly. Uh, I, I really like being driven by values. I like the things the world puts in front of me. I want you to remember this. In Paul's final letter, uh, shortly before he's executed for his faith in Christ, in his final chapter, he wrote, writes this about a guy by the name of Demas. For Demas, having loved his present world, has deserted me. A love world might take you places you never want to go what happens is when we really are enamored, we want what the world offers, it becomes our idol, whatever it is, popularity, prestige power, money, whatever it is, it's offering, and that becomes our God, it's an idol and it leads to a hardness of heart it leads to a self centered orientation that brings all the evil that you see right here And he says, verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God jealously desires the Spirit of God that he placed in us. When you and I place our faith in Christ, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. We were secured eternally. He gives us strength. He gives us power. He gives us a sense of well-being. It's the Spirit of God that is trying to cultivate growth and maturity and health in our life. All of this is from the Spirit. And when we start loving the world and going after the world and taking God and putting him in the back seat, it grieves the Spirit. And he says, don't you remember? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. You see, the Christian who habitually lives in sin... Who has a hardened heart, is far more interested in what the world has to offer than what God has to offer, does not have a humble spirit, what you've got is a miserable person. You're trying to walk in two directions at the same time, and it creates all sorts of conflict. There's an author by the name of Paul Copeland. he wrote a book that had a rather striking title Is God a Moral Monster? And in this book, he asked the question, when can jealousy be a good thing? And here's part of his answer. I'd like to read it to you. In God's case, it's when we're rummaging around the garbage piles of life and avoiding the source of satisfaction. It reminds me of a comic strip I once saw of a dog who had been drinking out of a toilet bowl with water dripping from his snout. Vital looks up to tell us, it doesn't get any better than this. Instead of enjoying fresh spring water, we look for stagnant, crummy substitutes that inevitably fail us. And Copeland goes on to comment, A wife who doesn't get jealous and angry when another woman is flirting with her husband isn't really committed to the marriage relationship. Outrage, pain, anguish. These are the appropriate responses to such violation. God isn't some abstract entity or impersonal personal principle. We should be amazed that the creator of the universe would so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. Friends, we've got a self-centered orientation. What happens is there's all sorts of evil that comes from that. But I want you to have the hope of God. This next verse, i got to start by it. I've got to underline i got phrases bracketed. Because, friends you don't have to live in the self-centered pride of life look what he says in verse six there is an orientation and there is grace that comes from humility before god verse six but he gives a greater grace isn't that good but god he gives a greater grace therefore it says god is opposed to the proud but he gives grace To the humble. You don't have to live in this cycle of just unsatisfied pleasures, uncontrolled passions, untapped potential, and unanswered prayer. God offers grace through his fellowship with him. You see, grace not only brings salvation and redemption and true forgiveness of sins, God's grace gives us strength for living. He gives us what we need in life. But the only way that we really receive all the many blessings of grace, anything for forgiveness of sins, to a fresh start, to faith, to hope, to peace, to this whole new orientation, it all begins with humility before God. What does the text say? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You might think of grace as this. It is the redemption and the riches that are found in one's relationship with Christ. God wants to satisfy your soul and it only can be done with him and through him and in him. And so that's why he says, yeah, God is opposed to the proud. Literally, he stands against. He will bring judgment, but he gives grace to the humble. The word humble has the idea to bow low, to bow oneself low. When we come in a position where we're bowed low before God, We're in a position to receive great grace. And our relationship with Christ is essential to growing in grace. And what he does in the remaining verses here, he just starts giving you just guidelines for growing in humility and grace. In fact, he gives it in like 11 imperatives, 11 commands. And he says, you want to grow in humility and grace? He just starts in rapid fire fashion starts explaining these. Verse 7. First thing you want to do is submit therefore to God. You need to understand that growing in humility and grace is active, not passive. It's not, these are, these are practices that are pursued. And the first one he says is submit therefore to God. This word submit has the idea of being in the military and aligning yourself under your commander's leadership. If you've ever been in the military, you know that you follow through with what the commander is asking you to do. If you don't, we're out of line, right? That doesn't work that way. What God is presenting to us is that when you're done with self and you're really willing to follow him, it looks like this. Yielding to God's leadership. Relinquishing the control of your life. Submit, therefore, to God. And the problem is this. The proud person, they find this to be the ultimate challenge. You see, the proud person wants to control everything. They want to control their spouse. Their kids, they want to control their schedule, every situation, every relationship, their money, because after all, they are in control. Or at least they think that way. If you want grace, you want to experience God's strength in your life, it starts with humility. Humble yourself, being willing to submit to God's control. And then he goes on to say, he says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So kind of the flip side of the first command is to resist the devil. It's literally to take a stand against his temptations. Temptations are any solicitation to do evil, whatever it might be, selfish, prideful, hurtful, to take someone or something that doesn't belong to you, to act out the impulses of your flesh, whatever they might be. You are driven by your passions. These are all temptations that Satan throws at you. And he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will see that you're yielded to God. You're in his army. You're following him. Now, he will flee, but likely he's going to come back. It's very interesting that Peter says almost the exact same thing. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You resist them, and you will experience the same victory of faith that others are experiencing. And then he goes on, he says, look at verse verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Here's another one of the precious promises of the Bible. Draw near. It has the idea of pursuing an intimate love relationship, communion and worship with God. And that's the promise. Like in Hebrews four sixteen, it says, Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. When we draw near to God, and this is a word the Spirit actually brings in our life. There is always the desire of the Spirit to draw near to God, and you have the full assurance that God draws near to us. And I'm sure you've experienced that. Maybe this morning in our times of worship. Or in your like your personal devotion time. Or you're just out walking and you're praying. When we draw near to God, we sense God drawing near to us. We experience His grace. We get renewed strength. We get a, a fresh perspective. We, we get hope. We get refocused. Why? Because He gives a greater grace. And Then he also says in verse 8, Cleanse your hands. You sinners. He has the idea of you renounce sinful actions and purify your hearts, so you double minded. So, if cleansing hands is dealing with like external behavior, purifying your heart deals with the interior motives. And what he's saying here is you don't want to be double minded. That requires that you and I take an active stance against evil. There is true humility before God, and we're not going to want to be double minded. If if you're trying to ride, like, both sides of the road at the same time, you're fickle and you're vacillating. Uh, right now, you're like, man, I kind of like the love of God, bit, but we see you in another setting tomorrow or the next day. And it's like, God, what? Oh, man, I'm all about this that's in front of me. That's where I find my sense of well-being. Friends, that is the double-minded person. You're trying to live two contradictory lifestyles. I can assure you um, auditorium this size, the number of people we have here, there's some folks that that's actually happening. You are trying to go in two different directions at the same time. It's double mindedness. God's calling you humility. This is the path of destruction, this double mindedness. And he says, you might want to take your sins seriously. Look what he says in verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. All of this has reactions to sin that are sorrowful. Like, you actually are bothered by your sin. You see what it's doing to your fellowship with God and even your relationships with others. And he says, uh, let your laughter, in verse 9, be turned in mourning and your joy to gloom. I don't want you to get the idea that he that what James is calling for is that we walk around with like really sad faces and we're wearing black and we're just very gloomy individuals. So the key to understanding this is, Is that, especially in wisdom literature, the idea of laughter is the idea of laughing at God. It's it's the opposite of the fear of the Lord. It's like, God doesn't exist. Or if he does, he's incompetent. And he'll never bring any judgment to sin. It doesn't matter. You just laugh it off. You laugh away any thought of God. And what he's doing, James, is like one of the Old Testament prophets. He's like, you want to refrain from a frivolous attitude toward evil. And then he says in verse 10, going back to humility, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, humility is the key to experiencing God's power. Humility is the key to experiencing God's power. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of the Lord, and he'll exalt you. Let me tell you what that looks like. It's like to say, God, that's it. I am so tired. I I repent of my strategies of always working things out together for my self-centered good. I want to turn over the fuel that's been driving. I I, I want what you want. I want you to lift me up on on your timetable, through your spirit, through the working of your word. But I am done with self-serving strategies. I want you. And then there's finally one more. These guidelines for growing in humility and grace. Look at verses 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. Speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Neighbor. This has the idea of slandering and defaming people. James does not forbid confronting sin or dealing with problems. What James is addressing in verses 11 and 12 is this lack of humility, this self-centered, prideful attitude, where an individual condemns, speaks careless, derogatory, critical statements, they slander and they accuse, They don't think about what they're doing because, after all, they're at this point driven by self. And he warns them to do so, to act in this way, to run around judging people and casting all of your ill will and spreading your stories and your vile interpretations and and impugning the motives and judging people. What he's saying there is you're putting yourself in a position that only God belongs God is the one who is able to save and destroy. But when you're running around with your careless attitudes and slandering people, friends, you're putting yourself in a position that only God belongs in. You see, what we want to do, yeah, when people hurt us, we want to leave judgment with the Lord. He's the judge who can save, and he's the one who can actually bring a verdict. But I want you to understand, this is pride on display And it prevents you and I from walking in grace. And that's what God wants. He wants you and I to be living in His grace. He gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud. Wherever it's found, in the church, at home, at work, in your neighborhood, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And friends, that's the vision that we need in our personal lives, how we interact with people, in our church, in our homes. At work, on our teams, in our groups, humble believers living holy lives. And I will tell you this those who are far from God, those who are still lost, those who've yet to place their faith in Jesus, they have little interest in a Savior that can't bring about holiness and love in His people. After all, you're telling me that you need God and He's everything to you? Doesn't look like you've done much. Friends, God is able and he's willing. The question is, are we? Bob Russell writes of a dad who was watching through his window and he he saw his young son out there in the in the sandbox. And apparently there was this big stone in the sandbox. And this little boy was trying to get that stone out. I mean, you know when you're playing in a sandbox, you don't want to have some big rock in there, right? But he, he just couldn't do it out. He's trying and Dad's kind of watching, and this kid does everything he can to get it out and can't. Finally, the little boy just sits at the edge of the sandbox and kind of puts his head down. He's totally defeated. So dad walks out there and he says, Hey, are you are you having problems? Yeah. Can't you, you can't get that stone out? No. Well, did you give it all your strength? Yeah. And the father said to the son, No, you didn't. You didn't ask me. I can pick that stone up. I can remove it. And friends, that's the issue. You get pride on the show. You're self-centered. Have you been brought through this text to the end of yourself? You're saying, I need to live differently. I need humility. God is able. He gives, verse 6, he gives a greater grace. For God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And the orientation of your heart is going to determine the direction of your life. Let's pray. Lord, it's an amazing, powerful text. How you can spell it out in such great detail. We see these interior motives of driven by self are the exact opposite of what you intend for our lives of walking in humility and joy and grace. So, Father, for someone who has come here today who's never truly trusted in Jesus, but they just pray for you now and say, God, This whole self-centered bit, that is me. And this morning, I am trusting in your son for forgiveness of sins. I've made a mess of this life. I am now trusting in you. Guide me and lead me. And work for all of us. James writes about this obstacle of self-centeredness because it indeed is just that. So God, would you give us greater humility. Humility before you and each other. A desire to walk in your grace and strength. For we want to see you high and lifted up. So God, do your work daily, hourly, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.